Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. Well, we have been in a series entitled, um, Are We There Yet? A Study in the Book of Exodus. Today I want to talk to you uh, about laying it down. And I want to begin this by actually reading um, a short portion of a song uh, that was written years back. It was written by a guy named Ken Miedema. Ken Miedema uh, is blind. Uh, he's a phenomenal piano player and uh, vocalist, though a little bit in the old school perhaps. I haven't checked recently. He's probably around 70, got to be over 70 years old or so like this at this point in time. He's actually uh, well known for both his talent and ability, uh, both being a blind piano player but also a composer. And a lot of times people just give him a, a word or two um, in a concert and he'll create an entire song uh, extemporaneously right there. Um, he was actually best man at my sister's wedding um, years back. And this is a classic of his that was entitled Moses. And it is uh, recounting a portion of it. So it goes here, and I, I can't do quite credit to it because the way he sings it has an impact. You can check it out on YouTube later. Again, old school, but kind of cool. Old Moses way back there in the wilderness saw some smoke, came to the bush, and the bush was burning. God said, take off your shoes, Moses. You're on holy ground. Moses, I've chosen you to be my man. Moses, way down in Egypt's land. Moses, I've chosen you to work for me. Moses, I've chosen you to set my people free. Not me, Lord. Don't you know I can't talk so good? I stutter all the time. Do you know my brother Aaron? He can sing like an angel, talk like a preacher. Not. And another thing. How will they know that I've been here with you? How will they know what you've sent me to do? Don't you know that in Egypt they want little Moses' head? Don't you know that in Egypt they want little Moses dead? Don't you know they'll never hear a single word I'll say? Maybe you'll get your better, dirty work done another way. Not me, Lord. What's that in your hand, Moses? <clears throat> it's just a rod. As we come up to this portion of Scripture, a little backstory again, if you missed it. Moses is a Hebrew child who is raised in Pharaoh's uh, household. Egypt at that time <clears throat> was one of the most, and has been over history, one of the most, and at that time, the most powerful nation on the planet, very advanced. And so Moses, for the first 40 years of his life, is educated um, in geometry and music and writing and poetry and all the aspects of warfare. In fact, according to Josephus, an ancient Jewish writer, um, he was to be the heir uh, to Pharaoh and to rule Egypt. That He also allegedly had um, uh, led them in battle against the Ethiopians and had been victorious. So in his 40 years, uh, first 40 years, he had some pretty significant things happen. He's somehow aware of his Jewish heritage and, and so even though he's raised Egyptian and walks like one too, as we said, um, he 
he sees the Hebrews and identifies with them. At one point in time, seeing a, 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 a slave driver driving one of his uh, Hebrew brethren, he kills the slave driver, the Egyptian slave driver, buries him in the sand, thinks he's gotten away with it until another encounter shows that he hasn't and people know about it. And so knowing what will happen to him, he leaves. And so he goes from this prosperous, powerful position and experience to now spending the next 40 years of his life on the backside of the desert. It should also be noted that, that while he has a powerful experience that we talked about and we're going to continue to talk about with God, that it's very probable that for the first 40 years of his life, his experience and understanding would have been very limited. Um, again, he was raised in a land of many gods. Um, he was raised as an Egyptian. But all this promise comes crashing down when he murders somebody and he runs to escape um, the fallout from that. So that's the background coming up to it. And he's now a shepherd. He meets Raul or Jethro and his daughter Zipporah, and he marries her and has a child or two. And he spends the next 40 years out there just shepherding and going around. And then God um, grabs hold of him. God seems to, to like grabbing shepherds for some reason, um, whether it's David or whether it's Moses. Um, there's something about this that catches God's heart. And so at this time that we pick it up, there's been this counter at the burning bush. This bush is burning, but it's not consuming. And, and as we said last week, Moses um, sees us and says, I'm going to turn aside and check this situation out. And it's when he chooses to turn aside at what God's shown him that then God begins to call his name. And we said, are we, are we open to looking and seeing what God may be lighting up in our pathway? Are we willing to turn aside from our path? It's only when we do that that, that we actually have an encounter with God, which he has. God shares his name with him and puts a charge upon him. And that charge is to go back to Egypt. But this Moses is not the same Moses that left Egypt. It has now been 40 years. And the 40 years is kind of a, an interesting time frame because we see a lot of things happening over a period of 40 years' times, you know, the, the, or at least with the figure of 40, whether it's been Noah and the flood, whether it's the 40 days of Jesus and temptation, the 40 years that we're going to find Israel wandering in the uh, wilderness, the 40 lashes that would have been leveled upon Christ, leveled upon people. It all speaks to a severe testing. This concept of 40 is punching across the idea that, that you're going to be tested about all that you can bear. It feels like forever. It feels interminable. It feels intolerable. So the Moses that God encounters at the burning bush is not the same Moses full of arrogance and an intensity that came out of Egypt. He's been tested. He's been tempered. And now, and only now, is he suitable for God's purposes. So he has this encounter. And um, in the process of all this, uh, he's resistant to going and doing what God wants him to do. In Exodus chapter 4, we pick up the story, um, verses 1 and 2. Uh, Moses answered, what if they do not believe me or listen to me uh, and say, the Lord did not appear to you? That's a little bit strange because just prior chapter 3, verse 18, God had promised that they would listen to him. And so he's kind of questioning now God. It's not just a resistance. There's a questioning in there. And the Lord says to him, what is that in your hand? And his response is a staff, or another translation would say a rod. 
rod would have been somewhat like this. It could have been something along those lines. It also could have had the classic little shepherd's crook on the, on the top that you kind of hook people. And you use it to guide the sheep, to drive the sheep sometimes. Sometimes you'd use it to defend yourself. Uh, snakes, really good to go have some distance between you and the snake and try and kill that snake. There's lots of reasons and purpose for it. It and sometimes would become the only weapon that... Um, they would have had in that time period. It's at this point that we find Ken Miedema's lyrics picking it up again. What's that in your hand, Moses? It's just a rod. Throw it down, Moses. Do you mean like on the ground? Yes, I said throw it down, Moses. Lord, don't take my rod away from me. Don't you know it's my only security? Don't you know when you live here all alone, a man's got to have something he can call his own? Not me, Lord. Throw it down, Moses. But Lord, I throw it down, Moses. But throw it down, Moses. Moses threw the rod on the ground, and the rod became a hissing snake. Well, Moses started running. Well, maybe you'd run. Well, maybe I'd run. He was running from a hot rod, running from a hissing snake, running scared of what God's going to do, running scared he'll get a hold of you. And the Lord said, stop. Pick it up, Moses, by the tail here very long. Lord, you've got the whole thing wrong. Don't you know you never pick up a hissing snake by his, pick it up, Moses. Oh God, it's a rod again. It's a rod again. He says, throw it on the ground. He throws it on the ground in Exodus chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. And it became a snake and he ran from it. And the Lord said to reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake, and it turned back into a staff in his hand. So he says, throw it on the ground. It becomes a snake. It worked in first service. I'm not sure why it's not working here now. Um, probably a lack of faith. I don't know. In the congregation. You know. He throws it down, and it becomes a snake. And then God says, pick it up by the tail. Now, notice in the scripture it says that he ran from it. Snakes out in that area of the world were deadly. One bite and you're gone. There was no, no, no anti-venom or anything else around. And the last thing you do is pick up a snake by the tail. Because they'll crawl around and they'll, they'll just crawl over your arm. and take it. How many of you don't like snakes? I hate the suckers. I don't care if it's the most innocent gardener snake, it must die. Okay? And I know that's wrong for all you environmentalists and all, but there's just something about them that, that we recoil from reptiles, and particularly snakes. He ran from it. So God's having to call after him. Hey, come on back. Okay? Now pick it up by the tail. And that took a little level of faith. So he picks it up by the tail, and it becomes a rod again. He then tells them to say, take your hand and put it inside your cloak, and when you pull it out, it's leprous, it's white, which, which was a type of disease that was incurable in that time period and was a very slow, painful, miserable death. It was uncurable. Put it back in again, take it out, it's now whole again. He says, along with these um, examples, I'm going to use these things with you to persuade or to set the children of Israel free. Now, one thing that we've never really discussed around here is why, of all things, was it a snake? Why did he take a rod and turn it into a snake? 
there may be a few reasons why, but I think one thing we can find, um, perhaps if we were to look at a little piece of, of history, I said that all the, the, the uh, um, tombs were raided and were, were emptied out of the ancient Egyptians, even the ones buried deep underground, except really for one, it's a, the uh, um, uh, tomb of Tutankhamun. And that's because it was under another tomb, so that one had been raided and nobody realized there was another one underneath it. There's a mask, a death mask of his that's been well known, and if you have that picture up there, um, gold with blue enamel, and this would have been placed there. It's very expensive. But if you look up top, you may have missed the fact that up top there, um, especially on this side, uh, I don't know if you can see that well from that definition, but it's a cobra. Uh, this cobra, this snake, would have adorned the crowns of almost all the kings and, and the, the pharaohs of Egypt. That snake was a symbol of their authority. It was a symbol of their power, of their potency, if you will. So now when, when Moses is going to go back and he's going to confront Pharaoh and is using predominantly this symbol to do that, this is in part saying that it's going to be a war of authorities. It's going to be a challenge in regards to the Pharaoh and what showed his potency and the potency not of Moses, but of God. That's one of the reasons I think as to why this was being done. Now, he's concerned as we go on, though, of, of his speech pattern still, though. Exodus chapter 4, verses 10 through 13, Moses said to the Lord, pardon your servants, Lord. And notice this. He says, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you've spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. Now, that is a fascinating passage there. Why is it so fascinating? Because we know from what we read last week in the book of Acts that when Stephen's giving his speech and, and, and summary of what happened in this time period, that he references that Moses was powerful in speech. And if he's leading men into battle, if he's raised up to be the heir, that would line up to that effect. So at one point in time, at least, he was eloquent and powerful and comfortable speech. So why is he saying here that he's not? Well, there's two possibilities that exist here. One possibility is the language used here is heavy of tongue. And it's the same language that's used in, a book, in the book of Ezekiel to talk about someone who has difficulty with a foreign language. So it's possible that he could sit here and say, look, I was raised in the Egyptian household. I'm fluent in Egyptian. I'm not that good with my Hebrew. Never used it, never had a need, except to instruct a slave on occasions. I'm supposed to now lead these children of Israel, and I can't properly speak the language. I'm heavy of tongue. That's one possibility. But there's another possibility I want to offer to you. The other possibility is that over the 40 years that he was in that desert experience, that he'd lost any sense of confidence that he had. Do you know public speaking is considered to be um, next to death itself, the number two fear that people have in their lives? So whatever you do, don't go speaking at a funeral. It combines the two. <laughs> but it's scary. You're exposed. Your, your words are analyzed. You're, you're all sorts of things. It's just a terrifying, what am I doing up here even right now? I don't know about that. It's a scary thing. And I think and would offer to you that while it could have re references to um, language elements, I think a big part of it is that um, in those 40 years in the desert, he had lost his fluency. He'd lost his confidence. 
that there was a raging sense of inadequacy that was so powerful that it had caused him to rewrite his own history. What made me think I ever was good to lead men? What made me think I was ever good? To I mean, I never was really good at any of that. I really wasn't. I was fooling myself. I deserve just to be a murdering person on the run out in the desert with the sheep. You ever done that? You ever find yourself in a hole so far in things that you, it's not just the hole you're in, but you begin to rewrite the previous history? Yeah, I failed in this, and, and yeah, I've, I, I probably failed. I've been failing all the time. I've, when was I ever? And the lies of the enemy work into you so that you begin to rewrite your history much darker than it was the man who was now returning to Egypt with the rod of God was not the same man who had left Egypt those years back. I've never been eloquent, not in the past, not since you've spoken to your servant. I'm slow of speech and tongue. The Lord says to him, who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I'll tell you, what, I'll help you speak. I will teach you what to say. But Moses said, pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. He's really resisting this. Years back, I came out of college with a degree in psychology, and it happened to be also one in Bible because it was a Christian school. I was in a gap year before I went on to my graduate studies in psychology when I was asked to be a youth pastor in East Detroit, something I absolutely did not want to do. Ministry um, is tough. There's um, a vulnerability. There's an exposure. There's all sorts of things about it that are great. I cared about people, but... I did everything to not accept that position. I remember sitting down, and some of you know the story, I sat down with the board of that thing, and I, I offered all sorts of issues I'd changed and things they were doing wrong. And, and then they offered me the position, and I just thought, what do you have to do to not get this thing, you know? I mean, I did practically everything but swear at them and cuss them out. <laughs> Decades a year later, and I stand before you now, When God intersects your life, especially if it's something that certain aspects you really don't want to be a part of, but you surrender that to him, um, there are certain things that won't happen in your life that you'll never be complete and full with until you do. But even after you've done that thing, there can still be other things. We all have issues in our lives and changes. And there's, there's that last surrender, I call it. What is that last surrender? That was one of my first real ones, if you will. But what's the last one? And I'm not saying the last one that now you're perfect. I'm saying the one that, of all things, you don't want to surrender. You're serving God, you're doing all those things, but there's some aspect, one aspect, one dream, hope, aspiration, desire that, that, that you have not surrendered. And it can even be a good one, a righteous one, everything else, but you haven't surrendered it to God. Moses is being called here, and he's giving all sorts of excuses as to why he can't go. And God begins to get irritated with him. He says, what about your brother, Aaron? Okay, I know he can speak well. He'll be the one, and he'll work it out. So go with Aaron and take the staff in your hand so you can perform the signs with it. 
in The Prince of Egypt, the musical, they portray Aaron as this really resistant, cynical type, and that wasn't the case at all. Aaron had a lot of his own problems. But he actually goes at this point in time and meets, he's sent by God to meet with uh, um, his younger brother and becomes a facilitator of that over time. And so with all these things being done and his authority over, over all that's involved, God says, um, Moses is finally going to go back to Egypt. All those things have been resolved or at least been answered. And so now he's returning. But again, he's not the same man who left Egypt that is now returning to him, to it. Now, before we go too far, we have to check one passage here in Exodus chapter 4, verse 24 and 26, because there's something weird that happens on the way. He's grabbed his wife and his kids. He's heading out there, and it says in this passage, uh, at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. What's this about? We're acceding to what you want, God. We're on the trip. We're there, and he's going to kill Moses. But Zipporah, his wife, took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. At that time, she said bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. So what's taking place? Circumcision was a symbol of the Jews' um, dedication to God. It was a mandated requirement. The Jews weren't the only one that practiced it. The Egyptians did as well, and there are others that did, but not for the same reason. They did it for different reasons. But this was a dedicatory act towards God and an act of submission and identification. Now, Moses would have been circumcised both as an Egyptian and in his other background there would have been that. But evidently his children were not. Now, why were his children? Why was his son not circumcised? Even though this is a mandated thing from God, it's a symbol of the covenant. It's a symbol of commitment and relationship. It's something that he was mandated as the father of the, of the son to do. He hadn't done it. And instead, as they're there, Zipporah does it. And why is God coming after him? If he was not willing to submit and truly follow God in all the ways that were possible in this, there was a gap. There was an opening that could have been problematic here. And so, like, we're going to, let's set you aside, Moses, and start over if you're not going to do this. Because there's going to be a weak spot. What's the weak spot in here? I would suggest to you one of those was his wife. I'm not picking on the wives. But I think it's clear Zipporah did not think this was cool. She would have been Midianite, so they didn't practice this. You're going to do what to my son's what? And so Moses kind of like, well, it's not that big a deal. Yes, it is. He's still learning the ways of God. Maybe he didn't realize fully, but it was. It was a mark of the covenant. It was an identification. It was a submission. All these things. And so he, he allows this to take place, to, to not take place, until his wife sits here and realizes what's going on somehow in one way. And she realizes that maybe he's too sick now to do something. Maybe it's just her responsibility. Whatever the case, she takes a flint knife, which would have been sharper and was used for surgical items than the metal knives because they could sharpen it more, more com completely. And she does the procedure but you can tell she's not thrilled about it. <laughs> you are a bridegroom of blood to me. You bloody, what is your traditions, whatever. That final thing is resolved out. As that thing is finally resolved out, there's one other thing, and we read it in the passage before. Exodus chapter 4, verse 22 and 23 is going to give us insight to something that's going to take place later in the next chapter, for us next week. Then say to Pharaoh, God saying, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my what? Firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so he may worship you, but you refuse to let him go. Now, it's not worship God. It's an interference not only with their freedom, but their freedom to worship God. 
You refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. And we know this is the last of the plagues that comes into play. And there's a lot packed into this that we won't unpack now. We'll take a look at that uh, next week a bit. But right from the beginning, there's something being laid down here that's an elevation of Israel in the eyes of God as his adopted, if you will, or chosen firstborn, but that's pointing to the sacrifice of his own son, Christ. But in this case, we'll have a cost for Pharaoh. And so we'll talk about that a little bit more as we go along. But as we look at this, here's where we come to. This rod that is offered up that becomes somehow symbolic of God's authority, something that was important to Moses but is now laid down and submitted to God becomes something important. This simple thing that's submitted to God becomes more powerful than the most powerful symbol of the most powerful man of the most powerful empire of its time. I want to repeat that again and have that expressed to you. This thing that's to turn to a snake, that's to challenge the authority of the snake that, that crowns the forehead of Pharaoh, of the most powerful nation, this simple thing, this rod that's been submitted now to God becomes more powerful than the most powerful symbol of the most powerful man of the most powerful empire of its time. I've been reading to you so far, so let me... Let me expand your understanding of some things here again. There is a poem entitled Ozymandias. It's been used in different television shows. You might have come across it in Breaking Bad if you were watching it, you know. There's other ways and places. It was written by a guy named Percy Shelley. Percy Shelley's wife was uh, Mary Shelley, the one who did the Frankenstein thing. They were kind of a power couple in the 1800s, early 1800s in England. He was poetry, she was a writer. Percy had come across a um, Greek historian, Diodorus, who in his writings from ancient times described this massive Egyptian statue. And at one point he quotes the inscription, King of Kings, Ozymandias am I. If any of you want to know how great I am and where I lie, let him outdo me in my work. King of Kings, Ozymandias, and how great he is. And so Diodorus becomes the traveler in this poem. At the same time, there had been a statue um, of this same Ozymandias who had been transferred to the British Museum. Napoleon had just lost the war with England, and this tyrant had fallen. When Shelley decides to have a, a competition with a friend named Smith to write a poem, and, and he wrote what turns out to be his most famous poem. Here it goes. I met a traveler from an antique land, the Greek, who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered vision lies whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive stamped on these lifeless things. If you have that picture, guys, if you want to throw that up. And on the pedestal these words appear, my name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. 
nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. The themes of Ozymandias are about the pretensions to greatness, the decline of rulers. It's a short, insightful commentary on the fall of power. How does that relate to our conversation today? Ozymandias was the Greek name for the pharaoh Ramses II, who from all indications was the pharaoh that that, um, Moses was just about to go back and challenge. Ramses II is revered as the greatest pharaoh in Egyptian history, the most powerful, and this was actually one of his statues. So he's sitting here and saying, I'm great and all powerful, look at my works, but most of those works have been buried by the desert. Most of those things have faded away. Man thinks that he's all-powerful. We think that we control destiny, that we can control others. But God stands above and continues way after those are gone. Right now, Moses is going back to Egypt to challenge that king of kings, this powerful figure who echoes through history. He's not the same man who left, arrogant, proud, ruler of men, eloquent in speech, He is now 80 years of age, having spent 40 years of testing and trial in the desert, having encountered the holy, having been transformed by that, having the one thing that was most valuable to him that indicated security and and, and provision put down before God now to become something far more powerful than the most powerful symbol of the most powerful man in the most powerful empire of its time. He was going back again to face Pharaoh. Ken Medem finishes his work this way. He says, what's that in your hand, Moses? It's just a rod. Throw it down, Moses. Do you mean like on the ground? Yes. And they go through the whole process of that. Pick it up again. Oh God, it's a rod again. It's a rod again. It's a rod again. Do you know what it means, Moses? Do you know what I'm trying to say, Moses? The rod of Moses became the rod of God. With the rod of God, strike the rock and the water will come. With the rod of God, part the waters of the sea. With the rod of God, you can strike old Pharaoh dead. With the rod of God, you can set the people free. Mirma ends his song thus. What do you hold in your hand today? To what or to whom are you bound? Are you willing to give it to God right now? Give it up. Let it go. Throw it down. What is it that you and I hold on to most? What dream, aspiration, personal thing that will be the last thing that we surrender? But when we do, God's grace is released in a way that has never been released before. In a moment's time, we're going to take of communion we're going to participate in an ancient ritual that is not the sacrifice of Christ because that was done once and for all, but it's a reminder of that sacrifice. It's a reminder that God did not spare his own and one and only son in regards to this firstborn adopted any more than he spared it for all of us who have been adopted into the kingdom of God. Shepherd's rod was not the scepter of Egypt. But then the scepter of Egypt was not the rod of God. 
the simple things submitted or surrendered to God became more powerful than the most powerful symbol of the most powerful man of the most powerful empire on earth. We sang a song here earlier. I pulled their lyrics. All the wreckage of my choices lifted from death, risen with him, now I stand in confidence. All the wreckage of my choices, Moses was a murderer. All the wreckage of my choices, he ran away. All the wreckage of his choices, he wasn't even willing to engage God. He resisted every single way. He was, he was broken. He didn't want... But finally, he submits before God. He lays it down. And God takes this man, not the same one who left Egypt, but now someone radically transformed, going in not by his power and with the scepter and the, and the flail of Egypt, but with this simple thing that had been his, but now was God's. What is it of yours? That's yours, but... God would say, give that to me. And in the giving of it to me, I'll return it to you. But it'll be transformed in the process. It may be a trait. It may be an aspect of character. It may be a relationship or a person, a dream or a desire. Rich in mercy, how you loved me. Too much to let me stay lost. Moses could have sung this. My salvation sent from heaven, nailing my sin to a cross, all but God. Crushed by the weight of my failure, living the lie I created, digging my grave without knowing, all but God. You may have had such an experience, such a time of brokenness, that you have begun to rewrite your history. I never was eloquent. I never was good. I was never effective. All that just lies in my head. But then something lit up in your life. A bush that didn't burn. And you turned aside. And God spoke to you in that time. And finally the last thing is surrendered. And it's surrendering. Something powerful takes place and transform you. This wasn't just for Moses. It was meant to be for every person that seeks God. So this morning, as we partake of communion today, I would encourage you to, to look what is it that God would say this morning, what person, what thing, what dream, what aspiration, what trait. Today, God would say, lay it down. We'll take of communion together, so please hold it, and we'll take together. There's bread in the bottom cup and wine in the top one. If you're not a member of this church, it doesn't matter to us. You do need to be a follower of Christ. If you haven't made that commitment to Christ, let it pass you on by, please. It's very important that you do that. But if you've accepted your follower of Christ, then, then join us today. But as this is passed out, as we meditate upon God's grace for us, Consider what it is that God may be asking you in this critical hour for the benefit of you and possibly for the benefit of many others to lay down. So, Father, this morning we come before you. Lord, for some of us, we still feel like we're in Egypt and we're caught with our arrogance and pride and our own desires. Others of us, we feel like we've been in the desert for so long. 
Some of us can't let go of our history. Others have rewritten it. Lord, this morning, you want to you want to write the song of our lives. And I pray as we consider your sacrifice today, as we come before you, Lord, that you would meet us in this place and time, that your Holy Spirit would go where my words could not. We submit this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So Moses returns to Egypt, not the same man that came out, a radically different man, tempered, tried. He comes back with a message to the Jews. The Lord is your salvation, and things are about to change. And next week, we're going to see a clash of kingdoms. We're going to see the struggle between good and evil. It's epic. One God against Egypt's hundred plus. One man transformed by the grace of God against another man, Ozymandias slash Ramses. Father, I thank you for your grace and your provision. I ask, Lord, that as we continue on, that you'd guide us in these things, Father. We submit ourselves to you, Lord, even that final surrender. We lay these things at your feet in thanksgiving, in Jesus' name. And the church said, Amen.